Okay. We here at NPR have an app we really like. We want you to try it, too. It is called NPR One. You can use it to listen to NPR news, shows, and podcasts. And as you do, it listens to you, and it figures out what you like the best, and it gives you more of that. We think you will like it. Find NPR One on your app store now. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our roundup of the week's political news. We'll talk about the president's big trip to Cuba, the terrorist attacks in Brussels, answer a few of your questions, and of course, end the show with Can't Let It Go. And someone is going to talk about the gold-plated interior of Donald Trump's 757. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign for NPR. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And I'm Scott Horsley, White House correspondent and travel editor. <laughs> wow. Ooh. And, and we should note that Scott Horsley, if you are ear blind, Scott Horsley is not Scott Detrow, who you hear regularly on this podcast. Before we get to all that other news we mentioned, we did have some primaries this week, primaries and caucuses on Tuesday. There's an episode about those results in your feed right behind this one. But Domenico Montanaro, give us the really short version of what happened. On Tuesday, uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump solidified their status as the clear frontrunners in the race. Bernie Sanders campaign on the Democratic side, hoping to win Arizona. But unfortunately for him, Hillary Clinton won Arizona on the Republican side. Donald Trump won all 58 of the delegates in Arizona because it was a winner-take-all state. Ted Cruz was able to pull out victories in Idaho and Utah, as did Bernie Sanders, by the way. Bernie Sanders won the most delegates of the night uh, as compared to Hillary Clinton, but didn't cut into Hillary Clinton's delegate lead overall. Okay, really quickly, let's do the math. Uh, Of the remaining delegates, let's run through the candidates. Who needs to win what percentage of the remaining delegates to get the nomination? On the Democratic side, let's just stick to those pledged delegates because the Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, Bernie Sanders supporters think that superdelegates are people who, you know, it's not fair to talk about because they could switch positions. So just of the pledged delegates, Bernie Sanders needs about 58 percent of all remaining delegates to win. Hillary Clinton needs about 42 percent. 58 percent is a difficult thing to do, means that he has to blow it out in a lot of different places Consistently, every time, each week, 58% of the vote. If you did add in superdelegates, and don't hate me for doing that, but if you did add them <laughs> in because they, they do count at the convention, he needs 67% of all remaining delegates. On the Republican side, Donald Trump uh, now needs about 53 percent, a little less than 53 percent of all remaining delegates. It's a little bit easier on the Republican side because you do have some winner-take-all states remaining. You have about five left that are winner-take-all for about 159 total delegates. Trump right now is about 60 percent of the way there to the magic number of 1,237 votes. But Ted Cruz, you know, for everybody who wants to talk about stopping Trump, you know, on the Republican side, stop Donald Trump, keep him short of that 1237. Ted Cruz needs about 80 percent of remaining delegates. And John Kasich, who's won his home state of Ohio, is already mathematically eliminated from getting a majority. But again, they want to just keep Trump below that 1237. So if Trump needs to get 53 percent. He's not winning in these states by even 50 percent. In the last couple of weeks, though, he has been winning uh, more than 53, 54, 50, almost 59 percent of the delegates in some of these states. Donald Trump has in the past few contests anyway uh, been able to pull out these kinds of margins. Because he still hasn't cracked 50 percent as far as like 
of the raw of vote. Raw vote. Yeah, which is raw really vote, interesting. Raw vote in a lot of places he hasn't gotten all that. But again, there have been, it's been a crowded field. It's a wider and as, field. Yeah, and as the field winnows, you know, people who thought Donald Trump had this ceiling were apparently wrong. One more thing about Tuesday to talk about is Arizona. There were epic lines for people to vote in Arizona, in particular in Maricopa County, where Phoenix is located. What happened? Well, one of the things, I mean, that night we saw long lines in all of the states. I mean, in in Boise, Idaho, in fact, there was one line that stretched longer than a mile. Like, amazing. I can't imagine standing in a, in a line for anything for a mile. Um, but what happened in Arizona specifically is they tried to save money. It's what happens all the time. And they actually reduced the number of polling places from 200 to 60. And it's a primary, so they figured, you know, it's not that big a deal. You won't have the same kind of turnout. You heard the Maricopa County recorder actually kind of make a mistake and almost blame voters for it and saying that, well, they showed up in these lines. In other words, they could have voted early. How or absentee. They? They, Imagine trying to exercise your franchise. Right. And she later in that same interview said, well, I'm not blaming them. I'm just saying she, they could have voted by mail. They could have voted uh, in person. In Colorado, uh, almost 80 percent of the state votes by mail in a general election. In Oregon, uh, it's 100 percent. So Arizona is trying to move to that model. Uh, hit a big, big, big hiccup uh, in this primary. I have two questions with this thing. Like, one, should we expect the same crazy long lines in November? And two, what is anyone going to do well, about it? Well, this is the thing that they're trying to, that they need to sort out. Because frankly, if you're looking up at televisions and you're seeing race calls for a state and you're in line yeah. to vote, yeah. I mean, it's one thing, you know, when a poll closes and at 10 o'clock, you know, they make a poll close call but that's because the poll the polls have have closed and people are people are done voting to have been done voting or at least be inside the polling place and you know they're not looking at tv but if you're in a line that's stretching four or five blocks or whatever and you're on your phone that could be potentially disenfranchising so like who's going to do anything about this is what i'm wondering well the mayor of phoenix has called for a justice department investigation um, I think that people are very much up in arms about this. Uh, Bernie Sanders supporters are especially up in arms about this. The thing that I will say is this is not new. This is like a different flavor of the th- same thing that happens every single election somewhere or many places in America that, you know, our democracy, we think of it as working really well. It is <laughs> deeply flawed. It works yeah. really well when we don't have close elections. And, and in, so, in 2012, like, when we had these long lines, you'll remember the president came out. Uh, he'd been reelected. And on election night, he said, we've got to fix this. But also, you know, we've seen on the politics of this, the, you know, the Bernie Sanders camp, not even the campaign, but Bernie Sanders supporters starting to try to point toward the potential for, you know, why Hillary Clinton won in the state as part of this reason. There's no way to know any of that information or to know whether or not the people who were in line actually had a chance to vote. I, I believe that most of the people who were there, if not all of them did wind up voting and got a chance to vote. But, but some people went home. I mean, that's true. How long are you going to wait and after the many, race has been and how called? How many went home? And you interestingly had pointed out that Clinton's campaign lawyer went into a Reddit chat room that was a Bernie Sanders uh, Reddit you know, chain. Reddit chain, yeah. And said, "Hey, we should all be in this together. This is uh, a problem." Uh, you know, he said that they filed lawsuits in in various states around the country, and disenfranchising voters is a very bad thing. Uh, the response he generally got in the uh, Bernie Sanders Reddit stream was, 
bro, you came to the wrong thread. Yeah. <laughs> Let's shift gears and talk about the other big news this week that has definitely gotten into the political realm and got into the political realm quickly, which is the terrorist attack in Brussels. Uh, in an earlier podcast, we talked about how it was playing out on the campaign trail. Um, Scott, uh, how did President Obama respond? The president was asked about uh, the terror attack and about the larger campaign against the Islamic State at a news conference in Argentina. And it was kind of reminiscent of the series of news conferences he did during the trip back in November, right after the Paris attacks. And he was in Asia right after. He started off in Turkey and then he was in the Philippines and and on a big uh, Asia tour. Uh, So he was out of this country when he was holding those news conferences. But he was very much trying to respond to what the people back home were feeling in the wake of the Paris attacks. And his performance was pretty widely panned. Um, So in a sense, this was a do-over for the president. He's not really changing his approach to battling ISIS, but he is changing, at least subtly, the rhetoric he uses to talk about it. And one of the things he was very careful to do when he spoke about this in Argentina Thursday was, A, acknowledge that Americans are rattled by these kinds of attacks. He talked about his own daughters and the fears he has and and his desire that they'll be able to travel the world with a feeling of security. When we see the sight of these kinds of attacks, uh, our, our hearts bleed because we know that could be our children, that could be our family members or our friends or our co-workers who travel to a place like Brussels. And it scares the American people. And it horrifies me. I've got two young daughters who are growing up a little too fast. And uh, I want them to have the freedom to move and to travel around the world without the possibility that they'd be killed. So I understand why... He acknowledged that that's a a genuine feeling for people to have. And he stressed repeatedly that battling ISIS is his number one priority. He's been accused of minimizing the threat posed by ISIS in the past. So he's not really changing what the military is doing. He's not necessarily changing what Homeland Security is doing about preventing attacks. But he is changing the way he talks about it. And I think, you know, it's a case of message received from the White House. Sometimes no drama Obama is yeah. perfect. Yeah, but sometimes no drama Obama works perfectly well for him. Other times, Americans are like, dude, there's some drama going on. Exactly. And then it's like with the GOP candidates, they're given all the drama in their response to this, right? Well, yeah. And I mean, you know, Donald Trump, uh, for example, uh, you know, and Ted Cruz. I mean, Ted Cruz came out trying to out Trump Trump and saying that, you know, need to monitor Muslim neighborhoods. Right. And Donald Trump had called on uh, a Muslim ban temporarily and reiterated that just hours after the attacks. The president was asked about Ted Cruz's proposal to patrol and secure Muslim neighborhoods in the in the U.S. He had just come from Cuba, the president had, and he said, I just left a country that engages in that kind of neighborhood surveillance. Which, by the way, the father of Senator Cruz escaped for America, the land of the free. The notion that we would start down that slippery slope makes absolutely no sense. And there's a, there's a reason, by the way, that Republicans bring up this issue, because in a Republican primary, terrorism has been the top issue for more than a year. Uh, you know, and on the Democratic side, it's just not the case. I mean, the economy still pops as the quote unquote top issue. Income inequality is something that Democrats are much more prone to want to talk about. And we saw Donald Trump benefit 
from Paris and from the San Bernardino uh, shootings back in November, Donald Trump's poll numbers went up almost 50 percent after he had started to talk very viscerally about how we need to bomb the expletive out of them. And by Christmas, about five, six weeks after the attacks happened, his numbers went right to the top of the Republican uh, electorate. And that was not necessarily what pundits were expecting. When when the (laughs) press attacks happened, there was a lot of thought that, okay, this is really going to be a time for serious politicians. Donald Trump is going to suffer because of this. This is one of a lot of times when the pundits got it wrong. But you wrote something this week, and I'm not saying you got it wrong, Domenico, but you you, uh, (laughs) you wrote something this week that the attack in Brussels is not necessarily good for Donald Trump. Right. Not necessarily. Right. I mean, in a primary, it's different than a general election was my point. As I said, no, it doesn't mean Donald Trump is going to be president, which you started to see a lot of people say. And there's a big difference between a general election electorate and a primary electorate. For example, some poll numbers, okay? On the Muslim ban that Donald Trump wants, it's wildly popular within the Republican Party. Almost 60% of Republican primary voters say, yes, do it. It's the right thing to do. But the opposite is true of the broader electorate. Not only do 82% of Democrats disagree, 60% of independents disagree that it's the right thing to do. So overall, 60% of the country says that no, the ban is not the right thing to do. When you look at even the head-to-heads, which I really don't like head-to-heads from a primary on out because you haven't litigated the case at all. But if you looked at the head-to-heads between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton back in November after the Paris attacks, 50-42 said they more trusted Hillary Clinton on terrorism. But for the people who it was the highest priority was terrorism, 60% of them trusted Donald Trump more than Hillary Clinton. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what's going to be the case in a general election that suddenly everyone's going to go to Donald Trump because Hillary Clinton will try to make the case that she has the temperament, the competence, and the experience more so than Donald Trump does. I believe she's been saying that. (laughs) So here's a question. If we have more attacks, either in the United States or overseas, and the president said yesterday uh, implicitly it's there may be more attacks because it's very hard to stop a small group of people that are bent on destruction and are willing to take their own lives. If there are more of these, does that raise the profile of terrorism as an election issue? Or do we become somewhat numb to it? And does it lower the temperature the way it's happened with, say, school shootings? I think I've already gotten numb to it. I was one of those people that was really, really freaked out after Paris. And I've talked about that before here. On the podcast. On the podcast. And Brussels happened. And I was just kind of like, man, it's going to keep happening. And I, I just didn't have the energy or like emotional strength to think about what I was thinking about post-Paris. Well, and it depends on proximity. I mean, if it, another attack happened in the United States. Very different. But what I find problematic in the aftermath of these things that happen in Europe is this kind of desire by politicians to equate a terror attack in Europe to something happening here. They're two very different situations. Europe is different than America. Europe has a different border system. They have a different level of integration of the Muslim community. It's not us, right? Like, I feel on both sides, politicians are not speaking truthfully about the differences between Europe and America. But rational or not, fear crosses over. I mean, people... Fear crosses borders. The fear crosses borders, but I do think there's this desire on both sides to really oversimplify what's going on there and here. (laughs) But that happens with everything. Yes. I'm just saying it it, it makes me mad. Um, And the other risk I will say for Hillary Clinton is that she is so closely tied with this president, with Barack Obama, and his handling of foreign policy issues has sunk after the rise of ISIS. I mean, his foreign policy handling is somewhere in the 30s. She's going to try to 
maneuver this line where she'll say that she's to the right of President Obama, which is why she talks about how she was in favor of arming Syrian rebels before he he was, and say, though, she's to the left of Republican saber-rattling rhetoric. And I'll just say, while President Obama uh, continues to have a weak spot with foreign policy, his overall approval ratings have actually gone up, and they've topped 50% for the first time in a long time. If that stays, that's got to be good for the Democrat that tries to succeed him. And we have, um, just to wrap up this section before we go to the break, we have some voting happening this weekend on the Democratic side, right? Right. In Hawaii, Alaska, and Washington State, all three should be big states for Bernie Sanders. And why can I not get assigned to go to Hawaii? I'm going. They didn't tell you. (laughs) (laughs) And then, and then spring break. Because only three states will be voting between March 26th and April 26th, which to me sounds like a break. And speaking of breaks. (laughs) Speaking of breaks, Scott Horsley, we have to take a quick break, but then we're going to talk about President Obama's trip to Cuba. Support for NPR and the following message come from Personal Capital, the smart way to track and manage your net worth. See all your financial accounts in one place and get free online investing software and money management tools. You can even speak with a dedicated personal investment advisor. Join us today at personalcapital.com slash politics. We're back. And this week, President Obama was the first American president to visit Cuba since 1928. The last guy had to take a boat And here is a clip from President Obama's big speech there in Cuba. The Bay of Pigs took place the year that I was born. The next year, the entire world held its breath watching our two countries as humanity came as close as we ever have to the horror of nuclear war. As the decades rolled by, our government settled into a seemingly endless confrontation, fighting battles through proxies. In a world that remade itself time and again, one constant was the conflict between the United States and Cuba. I have come here to bury the last remnant of the Cold War in the Americas. So, Scott. Catch us up on, oh, I don't know, early mid-century. What happened between that presidential visit in 1928 and the 1950s, 60s? President Obama himself offered a sort of a Cliff Notes version of U.S.-Cuban history during his speech to the Cuban public. And it's a complicated history. You know, it involves both liberation and, in the eyes of some at least, exploitation. For a long time, the United States uh, backed regimes in Cuba that didn't necessarily have the best interest of the majority of the Cuban people at heart. Of course, there was the Cuban Revolution that brought Fidel Castro into power. Then that was followed by a half century of the U.S. embargo, where we tried to bring Castro down by essentially walling off Cuba. And then 15 months ago, fast forward to December 2014, uh, this remarkable phone call between President Obama and Raul Castro, Fidel's brother, uh, where they said, look, we're going to try something different. Where does the Bay of Pigs fit in? 
The Bay of Pigs was after the Cuban Revolution and early in the John Kennedy administration. Uh, it was actually planned under Eisenhower and carried out to disastrous results with uh, under John Kennedy. Um, and it was a group of uh, Cuban exiles that were trained by the CIA to go back and stage a counter-revolution, and they were, they were completely repelled. Scott, there's been so much romanticizing of Cuba and Havana and what it means, I mean, through American literature, through some of the people who've, you know, maybe been able to go there or remembering, you know, all those Hemingway stories from before uh, sure. Cuba. But what was Havana like driving around there, seeing it? Was it what, how do you equate it to an Amer- to a modern American city? It's not like a modern American city. <laughs> it's not even like a modern Latin American city. It is uh, frozen in, in amber. And it really, you know, it you can see the scars of the embargo. I mean, it has been, uh, it has suffered economically uh, by design uh, by the United States. That, that's deliberate. But it is badly in need of uh, uh, some some fresh paint and some, some spare parts. Do they get new cars now? I saw all these photos of all these old cars in Cuba this week. There are certainly a lot of old cars, and and the president joked about the ingenuity of the Cubans, as illustrated by their ability to keep these, you know, nineteen fifty seven. Some of them with like Merce- the some of them with like Mercedes engines now, because sure. they can't yeah. get the part, couldn't get the parts. But there are also newer cars on the road because you know the rest of the world did not observe the embargo. Europe oh. sells cars, Japan sells cars to Cuba. There are not a whole lot, just because there's not a whole lot of money on the island. But it's uh, it's the, the only new cars you don't see there are American made cars. Huh. But this trip, on some level, for some people, was deeply controversial, particularly among Republicans um, and especially among politicians who have Cuban ties or Cuban family. I don't want to minimize the strong feelings that some, in particular Cuban-Americans, and in particular the Cuban-Americans who came here soon after the revolution, have the antipathy that they hold towards the Castro regime and, and their strong opposition. But I also want to keep that in perspective. The White House has frankly been surprised at how little pushback there has been over the last 15 months uh, to their policy of reestablishing diplomatic relations with Cuba. It has been warmly received by most Americans and even by a narrow majority of Cuban Americans. Because for the Cuban Americans, especially younger Cuban Americans and those who came to America more recently, they don't have that really visceral hatred of the Castro regime. And what's more, a lot of them still have family uh, on the island. They want renewed contact. They want to see that opening. So while there is certainly a core that remains totally opposed to this move, uh, this has actually been welcomed by a majority of Americans and a larger majority than I think the White House itself even expected. And the president brought along with him the head of uh, Starwood Hotels, right? Because uh, they're they're inking a deal or just inked a deal for, for resorts there? Starwood is going to be managing three hotel properties in Cuba. Uh, uh, executives from Marriott and Airbnb also tagged along with the president as well as the CEO of Xerox. There was quite a business contingent that came along on this trip. A lot of eagerness to do business with Cuba. But even as the Treasury Department and the Commerce Department have relaxed the rules at this end, Cuba hasn't necessarily uh, taken the similar steps. And, And the president, when he was addressing the Cuban people, said, look, 
even though I want Congress to lift the embargo altogether, even if that happens, it's going to take some action by the Cuban government if you really want to open up. I was this just going to say the embargo is not lifted yet. I mean, we should. It is make, not. And and so how long before people in the U.S. can reasonably think that they could, you know, travel to one of these like oh. Sheridan well, well travel restrictions have been so, so the embargo is still in place, and only Congress can completely lift that. But the administration has already been chipping away at it little by little, and in effect the travel ban is basically gone. You still can only travel to Cuba for one of the dozen approved purposes, but it's basically the honor system. You just have to check the box to say, this is why I'm going. The next step is going to be when the airlines start having direct flights and and scheduled flights. As Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona told me, once you can use your frequent flyer miles to get to Cuba, then you're really going to see travel change. I want to ask about the press conference that President Obama and uh, President Castro had which watching it on the internet back at home looked like one of the most awkward things in the world. You know, this was a really dramatic uh, news conference, and we did not know up until the last minute if, in fact, Raul Castro was going to take questions. The White House had been pressing him to do so, but, you know, you just don't know what's going to happen. But it was really remarkable to watch as Jim Acosta of CNN, a a Cuban-American, second generation, pressed the president of Cuba on why his country has political prisoners, why doesn't he let them go. Now, Castro's response was, frankly, kind of dismissive. Dame la lista, he said, as if to suggest there were no political prisoners. Give me the list. Give Give me the the list. list. Show me these political prisoners you're talking about. Uh, But more than what he said was just the fact that uh, the president of Cuba stood there and took fairly confrontational questions from American reporters. And what's more, this was all carried live on state television. And every word of that press conference was printed verbatim the next day in the state-run newspaper, a pretty remarkable event in Cuba. The thing that I saw uh, afterwards was this weird image of Castro <laughs> trying to hold up Obama's arm. I and guess Obama's it spoke, hand was like flopping down. And the hand down. was flopping and it was weird. But it also like speaks to the optics that Obama has to carefully walk. Like he doesn't want to seem too chummy with this guy, right? Yeah, he was not going to let... Uh, ha- having put Raul Castro on the spot and forced him to sort of answer for political prisoners and other human rights violations. The president didn't didn't want to look like you know the referee holding up the boxer's triumphant yeah. hand, yeah. And, and so that made for a little awkwardness. Um, in general, though, you know the optics were pretty friendly at the baseball game. The two of them were sitting side by side, right behind home plate. Uh, there was a, a state dinner. Uh, in general, I don't think the president was resistant okay. to, to to showing up alongside Raul Castro, as he said, you know, we're going to have normal diplomatic relations now. That doesn't mean we're going to agree on everything. We're going to raise the disagreements when we have them. I'm not going to hold my <laughs> my hand overhead with you as if we're, you know, all on the same page. Uh, but that's the, the, new, the new dynamic. Okay. We will be right back with listener mail and can't let it go. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Harper Paperbacks, publisher of Kate Anderson Brower's The Residence, Inside the Private World of the White House, a backstage account of America's most famous address, covering 50 years and 10 presidents and their families, offering anecdotes and details of family life in the White House, from the Kennedys to the Obamas. The Residence also chronicles the resident's staff, who orchestrate everything from state dinners to child care and cater to every need of the president and first lady. Now in paperback. All right, we are back, and it is time to go into our tote bag full of listener mail. 
First up, Randy in Vermont, he wrote to ask, my can't let it go is Donald Trump's totally tricked out 757. Should the Don become president, can he fit it with the necessary gear? And is there a law that the president must fly aboard Air Force One? <laughs> okay, so um, let us describe Donald Trump's totally tricked out 757. You don't have to even describe it because the Trump Organization has put together a helpful video. Uh... With some awesome music. Hi, I'm Amanda Miller and I'm standing inside Mr. Trump's luxurious new 757. I'm here to give you an inside look into traveling Trump style. Mr. Trump's new plane fits 43 passengers. Has what year is this? 2011 or something? It was not long ago. You'll notice the seatbelts, as well as everything else, are 24 karat gold plated. 24 karat gold plated. So not solid gold. So, Scott, you've been on Air Force One. Everything's gold plated there, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, the, the gold plated seatbelts are, I think, the one point you'd have to give to the, to the Trump airplane. On the other hand, Air Force One has some compensating features. Uh, it can carry about twice as many people as Donald Trump's 757. It can be refueled in air, mid-air, mid -air, so it's got basically unlimited range. It has its own operating room. Like literally an operating literally room. Literally an operating yeah. room. Just, Just in case. case. It has hardened electronics uh, to prevent electronic uh, sabotage. And although this is not officially confirmed, it is widely understood to have anti-missile defenses. The guest bedroom has a magnificent mohair divan that converts into a full-size bed. But does it have a magnificent guest bedroom? <laughs> <laughs> Probably does. And I have to it say... It has a magnificent uh, master bedroom. So let's just say Donald Trump, should he have the option, may actually prefer to fly in the plane that has the presidential seal on the outside. But and the missile stuff. Is there... Is there any rule that prohibits Trump, should he win the presidency, from just riding Trump on Air Force One? Oh, well, that's <laughs> right. I mean, there's no law that says you can't do that, right? It would probably take about 15 years and several purchase orders to get it done, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have a question here from Daniel who wrote to ask, if the GOP had superdelegates, is it likely that Trump would not have such an insurmountable lead? Yes. Well, <laughs> all right. Moving say, on. It it assumes it assumes a few things, right? Because first of all, superdelegates we should explain are on the Democratic side only, and superdelegates are unpledged party leaders and elected officials. Okay, these the establishment. are establishment, right? But they are people who are um, governors, senators, members of Congress, former party leaders, uh, former presidents. Bill Clinton is a superdelegate, for example, uh, from New York. So. Those are the kinds of people, if you were to put them in the Republican Party and magically create 714 of them or half of that or whatever uh, Republicans would choose, the, the reason why some people say that then Trump wouldn't have as large a lead is because, frankly, none of those folks have endorsed him. Yeah, so, I mean, Very if few you, of them. If you look at the endorsements and pretended those were superdelegates in this imaginary world, then Marco Rubio would be the Republican nominee or Jeb Bush would be not the Republican nominee, nominee. Not nominee, because superdelegates only consist of 15 percent of all of the Democratic delegates anyway. They'd so have a greater advantage. They'd ha Well, they'd have a chance to cut into Trump's lead, but right now he's winning by more than 15 percent. And on the Democratic side, let's just play this out, too. Are superdelegates really, really helping Hillary Clinton or... 
not. So the reason why both sides talk about these pledge delegates is because of this idea that superdelegates can vote however they want. So right they can now, switch. Right, because they can switch. You know, if Bernie Sanders were to win the majority of pledge delegates, he could have an argument to say to superdelegates, vote for me because I won your state. Right? Essentially, that's what it comes down to. But when you look at the lead that Hillary Clinton has, even with pledge delegates, she's up by 303 votes right now, 303 pledge delegates. Um, if you factor in superdelegates, she's got a 744 delegate lead. So there is a big difference. It's much wider, but she's still ahead. And now I want to just give a shout out to Abby in North Carolina, who wrote to us this week. Since I introduced my third and fifth grade daughters to your podcast, they have become completely engaged in the current political scene. They can explain a contested convention and the implications of and strategy behind nominating a moderate judge to the Supreme Court. They can't wait to hear each new episode, nor can I. And I am thrilled that we are no longer listening to the beebs in the car. Somebody ought to call Child <laughs> Protective Services. No, but here's the thing, though. Like, And I know that I'm already getting in trouble for my un- popular positions on music and like my yes. taste in music that sorry song by justin bieber is good well and and it's a what, good if, song. what if the kids were listening to beyonce you That's might right. you might also, think it's a bad thing they're listening to us i guess well there's a world where you can listen to podcasts about politics and popular music i do it every week anyway point is though Thank left you. channel we, right we, channel That's right we are very thankful for that thank kind you of abby app. thank and, you and i will say she listens on wunc and the folks in Chapel Hill are a lot of smart people. I have friends who listen on WUNC who are down there, and they are brilliant people, and we love them. We I love worked North for WUNC Carolina. for a few months in 2012, and I loved it out there. Shout out to, to UNC as well. And now it's time for that segment we call Can't Let It Go, where Sam Sanders talks about Beyonce because he can't let Beyonce go. I'm going to a show in Baltimore. I'm so excited. <laughs> I, I, I'm guessing we're going to hear about it. I heard you're taking like a it. week off. I'm, I'm taking a day off. Well, you have to get all the way to Baltimore. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. Okay, Sam. Don't tell my bosses this. This week. This week, what I can't let go of. Yeah, what can't you let go of? So uh, we also got a question this week from Ariana. She's a teacher in Texas. Sup, Texas. Uh, She's asking what effect social media has had on this election. Uh, Twitter turns 10 this week. Hmm. And it still kind of acts like a 10-year-old. It does, exactly. But, like, (laughs) I was thinking about... What has Twitter done to our politics? Like, has it made things better or worse? Has it actually changed things? Like, I don't know. Well, based on this week's Twitter battle between Trump and Cruz, life is worse. Yeah. and Everything is awful. I think that social media paved the way for a candidate like Trump to succeed in the way that he has succeeded. But, like, in other regards, I have a lot of questions about what Twitter means politically. Like, you look at all these social movements that have started on Twitter, the Arab Spring, the Occupy movement, the Black Lives Matter movement. A lot of people still have questions about what was actually accomplished from those things. Although when it comes to political discourse, I mean, I think you were answering your own question there. I mean, I heard one social media philosopher say to me uh, late last year that all kinds of speech uh, when it comes to social media winds up, you know, dissolving uh, into something not very good. Do you know who that philosopher was? It was you, Sam. Sam. <laughs> what are you trying to do? A you wise said, remember, man. Because of Instagram. Oh, my story. Yeah. Video, yeah. Everything just devolves, uh-huh. right? Right. So, like, we see this thing where Twitter is around, but, like, what has it really been good for is my question this week. I don't know. Right. Well, and the thing is, I mean, a lot of us use it kind of like our wire service, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I can't do my job without it. I, I mean, I follow, you know, all of the reporters who I respect and know. I follow, 
you know, Republican and Democratic strategists. And uh, I remember Dan Pfeiffer, who's uh, one of the communications uh, advisors at the White House, had said that he goes on Twitter to know what journalists are thinking and talking about. And that's part of it for us. Right. I mean, and everyone's got their thing. I mean, if you talk about echo chamber, I mean, there are insurance salesmen, there are uh, educational researchers and they insurance have their salesman own Twitter. <laughs> well, I don't know. What that is. There probably, there probably yeah, is. Yeah. You know, what I find really interesting about it is that like, at least from my vantage point and what I see on Twitter, I watch and follow a lot of black Twitter. And when black Twitter became this thing, there are lots of folks on the outside looking in who were like, oh, my God, they're so angry. And it's like, no, <laughs> no they no. were always angry about these issues. They always had problems with these things. You just weren't listening. Like, in its truthfulness or not, is Twitter just magnifying things that were already always there? I don't know. Yeah. Could be. I, there, we might have to turn to a great philosopher to find the answer to that. Not me. <laughs> Scott Horsley, <laughs> what can you not let go of? Oh, so many things from that trip to Cuba that I uh, have trouble getting letting go of. I mean, when you think about the, the sound of the Star Spangled Banner wafting across Revolution Square and echoing off these giant portraits of Che, I mean, <laughs> whoever wow. thought we would hear that? But... The thing I really can't let go of is this fabulous breakfast I had in Havana. <laughs> really? Four Vaca different frita kinds burrito. of ham and sausage. It was my own personal Bay of Pigs. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> he prepped that. Wow. Did they have uh, moons over jokes, my hammy Scott? also? Yeah, who writes your jokes? It wasn't, you, did... <laughs> it wasn't quite the Denny special. <laughs> Bay of Pigs in a blanket? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh. Okay. Okay. Domenico. Well, I just can't let go of people who keep talking about how they don't want to be vice president, who are, you know, who would take the job. I mean, for example, John Kasich earlier this week, the Ohio governor, had said, you know, I'm no one's vice president. And and people do this all the time. I mean, in 2011, you had all kinds of candidates saying, oh, I would never run. I would never. I'm the person in charge. And when you're running, it's like a double edged thing, because you, when you're running, you don't want to have your supporters think that you're OK with being someone's number two so that they shouldn't vote for you. So on the other side of that, though, are people who don't want to look like they're trying for a job. They don't want to look like they're trying too hard. Right, Because if you're trying for that job, then that uh, that's not that's unbecoming. I just don't like Kasich really doesn't like Donald Trump. Why would he ever run with him? So and this, I, I know I mean, I know it happens all the time. People who don't, don't get along, then all of a sudden get along. But. I thought Chris Christie didn't like Donald Trump. Yep. Remember all of those things that people talked about. Right. I mean, Chris Christie, people played all of those Chris Christie pieces of tape where he had said the worst things possible about Donald Trump. If you get to be one heartbeat away from being president of the United States, it looks kind of appealing. Plus, John Kasich likes to say, no Republican has ever become president without winning where? Ohio. Right. O-H-I-O. No. No. Well, okay. (laughs) You gotta win Ohio. You're so chipper today. (laughs) It was the cough. And I can't tell you how many Democrats I've talked to and independents who say that John Kasich sounds like somebody who could be crossover, you know, that makes them a little nervous. And if Donald Trump sits up and says he loves the polls. If he sees the polls close to the convention and he's coming close at 1237, you know, why not? And like Sam, you're saying, oh, well, John Kasich would never run uh, with Donald Trump. That's what he says now, you know, but uh, it's politics. Let me add a question to that conspiracy, possibly. What if Donald Trump says, hey, John Kasich, will you be my running mate? 
would those Ohio delegates that John Kasich has oh, there you go. put Donald Trump over the top? So I mean, suppose, that could be the difference. So suppose, so suppose you know, Donald Trump is 143 delegates short of a majority, and right now that's what John Kasich has, 143 delegates. Why not? So the classic example of how you want to approach this is somebody like Tom Perez, the labor secretary. He's been mentioned by a lot of people as a potential running mate for Hillary Clinton. Uh, he's not talking about it himself, but he's he's doing all the spade work. He's he's out there, uh, a very aggressive surrogate for Hillary Clinton. He's on the trail, pitching in, doing what he can to promote her campaign. And now, Tam, what, what are the chances of a Clinton-Sanders ticket? <laughs> well, uh, Bernie Sanders just, just has been asked about that, and his top advisor, uh, Tad Devine, was asked about that. Uh, and uh, I would say the odds are not high. <laughs> Um, and the real reason is that you want your vice president to bring something, to bring a demographic. Now, Bernie Sanders would certainly bring young voters, but he comes from a state, Vermont, that is a very small state, that is not a swing state, that is not going to be one of those targetless states. As Vermont goes, so goes Maine. Hey. <laughs> and if you keep seeing 80 percent of Democrats uh, who are Sanders supporters say that they're OK with Hillary Clinton, you're less likely to have to bridge that kind of divide. Yeah. So, little Tam Tam, what can you not let go this week? <laughs> it's back to President Obama and, and this trip that he's been on. Uh, after Cuba, he went to Argentina. There was a state dinner where I don't know exactly how this ended up happening, but President Obama ended up doing the tango. President Obama, in this video that you're hearing, is doing the tango with a, a very talented tango dancer with back muscles that I could only dream of. Is that Michelle Obama? <laughs> Michelle Obama oh. was separately doing the tango with a Whoa. male tango That's dancer. That's why I think Brock was awkward with his tango. Yeah. You can't be tangoing like real seductively when your woman. wife yeah. is right down the hallway. He was tangoing like... He was... It was it was mom pants Obama, Aww. not hangs out with Beyonce Obama. Okay, but in the collection of international dance exercises by Barack yes. Obama, this is not even the worst. <laughs> the infamous Indian folk dancing class that that will always stand out. To compare to that, the tango was a model of grace. But also, the tango is hard, right? Like it takes a long time to master. So, fact: yes, my, my grandfather in the 1950s was a tango champion. It did not filter down. Like, how big of a tango champion? Like, he was, I I don't know specifically what the, you know, what level it wound up rising to, but he competed on in, like, world competitions. What would your grandpa say? Wow. Uh, My grandfather would say, let me show you how it's done, and then stand (laughs) up with one of my girlfriends or something, you know, and, like... Wait, one of your girlfriends? Well, I'm just saying, like, through, through... college and you know now with my wife when my grandfather met my wife it the first thing he did was well take her by the hand and stand up and <laughs> dance with her in the basement i'm telling you he would do this he would do this with everyone nurses man. like waitresses it just <laughs> and i bet it worked every you know? time yeah. by the same name he had a little more flair okay we're going to start calling Montanaro. you Domenico Ballroom Montanaro <laughs> That is all the time we have for this episode. If you like the show, please rate it on iTunes. That helps other people find us. Thank you for doing that if you already have. And also find us on Twitter. You can send us your questions there or by email. Our address is nprpolitics at npr.org. Thank you for writing to us. We really do read everything. Uh, I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign for NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. I cannot tango. 
I'm Domenico Montanaro, not much better, but I'm political editor. And I'm Scott Horsley, White House correspondent and travel editor. And you tango, right, Scott? All the time. <laughs> Does it take four to tango? Because <laughs> we've got four tonight. <laughs> Okay. This is this is a day of crazy bad puns. Thank yeah. you for listening right. to the NPR Politics <laughs> Podcast. Yeah.